This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, coming to you from the New York Times New Rules Summit in Brooklyn, New York, which is actually its own two-day conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I now have the great opportunity to talk with one of the New York Times reporters who's covering the event today, Eileen Zimmerman. Welcome to Women at Work. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Eileen, many of us are here because we want to learn what's going on, and some of us are here trying to translate it for the rest of the world. Right. You've been doing both. Tell me, what's speaking to you? What are you feeling, learning? How's it resonating with you as you're taking this all in? It feels like a very there's a very positive vibe coming from everybody here, and and whenever I leave things like this, I always feel like, oh, we're going to make all these strides, like things are going to open up for women. And I found the last panel with Adam Grant um, and Alicia Mendez um, really interesting um, because they were talking specifically about how we need to raise the next generation of girls to be brave and strong and also um, take chances. And I also thought it was really great that they mentioned what we have to do for boys as well because I think you can't just... Um, make it the responsibility of girls and women. I think you also have to make it the responsibility of boys and men to help enable a more diverse workforce. I also loved hearing about that too. As we were, to, I got we got to have dinner last night together, uh-huh. and That's um, right. and we were talking about Sajani's book, Brave Not Perfect. But I love. I loved seeing the dialogue extend to what do we teach boys that not only helps them grow up to be men who make room for women, but lets them be happy men. Absolutely. You right. are the mom of a, you have a boy. I have a son, right, and a daughter. Right. So did, did any of this resonate there in how you help him grow up to be a happy person? That's such a nice question. Well, I was thinking that, um, that because uh, his dad, when he was growing up, worked a lot, so he was mostly with me and his sister, that he is, you know, maybe because he had a lot of female influences, he is, he is a really nice kid, a nice guy, and also it was really important to me that he be emotionally accessible and um, and also sensitive and, you know, not overly aggressive. So I think I felt kind of validated that I had done those things even before the Me Too movement and this cultural shift that we're now seeing. Um, but one thing that also came to mind was that um, in this last panel especially, a lot of the talk in this conference has been about the onus on the individual, but I also think the problem with um, gender bias and gender gap and gender discrimination in the workplace is so systemic that I think we also, at some point, I mean, I think we are, but we're also going to have to keep looking at the systems that are in place that kind of put up these barriers for women and for, and even more so for women of color and, all the, you know, and, and men of color. I mean, so I think it's a big, big question, but it did feel very heartening. You know, it feels like we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, it feels like it's a dynamic discussion with a lot of great people that are in the room who are leading organizations and trying to make change. But that issue, that theme today, also struck a chord in me. We're talking about this stuff all the time and trying to figure out how do we help ourselves advance? How do we help our daughters advance? But also, what can we do to help society change? The culture change, the rules and structures change. It's why this is the new rules summit, because those things need to change. So I know that one of the things you're going to do after you're done sharing (laughs) a few minutes with us is you have a deadline because you're preparing an article to go into the Times. Tell me a little bit about how you're thinking about the balance of those two things as you're processing the information that you want to share with your readers. You mean, how am I going to get this done? Well, that's a good question, okay. too, for those of yeah. us who like want to learn how do you operate on a deadline and make things happen. <laughs> but in particular, um, of all the information you've taken in about what we need to do to close the wage gap mm-hmm. versus the structures that need to change and the culture around us, how are you weighing these things out in your own head? Well, I just, I think what comes to me is that it's going to be, a, it's a, such a slow process. Like, I think... It, it does need to change, but the fact is, today we're sitting here ha- at this conference, and women still make, generally, overall, 79 cents on the dollar that a man makes. 
for women of color, it's even um, a greater disparity. For executive women, I think, compared to equal executive men, it's not quite as mm -hmm. um, big a difference, but um, I don't have those figures in front of me. But I, um, but I do think what I took from this and what I'm thinking about as I think about writing the story is that it's not just the wage gap, that it's a much bigger gap than that. It, yes, there is the, the money, but I think if all we do as women is demand more money, we're missing a much bigger point because whenever we talk about the gender gap, we talk about dollars and cents, but it's also about all these other barriers, psychological barriers that were talked about today, you know, how do I feel brave? How do I ask for a raise? How do I ask for a promotion? You know, why is it that women, when they're discussing salary, will go back later to the HR person and say, well, I couldn't really talk to my boss about it, but I think I really do deserve blank. And men will walk in generally asking for what they feel they deserve. So there's that, but I think the, it's a lot more nuanced and a lot deeper, to be honest, in our psyche as women. I think, and also I think, you know, co corporate America is not, hasn't been set up traditionally as a place where women or people of color can excel. I'll tell you one story. My daughter works at a fintech company in Seattle, and her dog had some health emergency where the dog had to go to the vet or whatever, and she said, she called me from the, the lobby of the building and she said, I'm, I have to take, I don't know what to do, I have to take my dog to the vet or something. And she was crying. And my first thought was, I was like, they cannot see you crying. I said, if they see you crying and you're a woman, I said, it's going to be over. And I couldn't believe the words were coming out of my mouth, but they were. And I still do feel like they probably will judge her if they were to see her teary-eyed over her dog <laughs> during the middle of the day. So, um, you know, I, I have a lot to learn, too. It's both funny and truthful because, and I think it's a recurring theme that came up today, that there are realities that we face going through our work lives where, you know, not at the beginning of our careers, hopefully solidly in the middle, um, but that there are ways that we want things to be different for our kids and our daughters. And so how do we navigate advising them to succeed in the world that we know while leaving room for them to be in a world that we'd like it to become? Oh, that's such a good question. And I don't know. And I, and, and the question is, is, is it going to become that world? Even um, it wasn't on this panel, and it might have been two panels ago, but someone said, you know, where you leave, oh, it was the panel before this, where you leave the workplace when you're a woman, let's say, to raise a family or take care of a parent or whatever, that's where you're going to come back in. And everyone else you worked with, whether or not it was women that chose not to leave the workforce or didn't have kids or men, they've moved on and you have to now scramble to find how do you catch up. And, um, you know, I, I wonder how that will be for my own daughter. You're right. And, you're, you know, I'm sure you wonder too. Well, one of the things that I do think know is going to come from this conference are lots of stories that get shared. Thanks to all of the New York Times reporters who are here today. Um, when I think about embarking on a major project with my team, you know, we have that staff meeting, we gather around, we're like, okay, we're going to go. We're going to knock this out of the park. Can you share a little bit with me about how all of you were launched into this event today? What are you all here trying to accomplish together? Oh, that's, uh, that makes it sound like a, so much more of an organized effort, but it's done very virtually by our editor who runs all the special sections for the Times and is remarkable. And um, it, uh, we kind of received our assignments and I think we each talked to the editor privately on the phone about how we wanted to cover um, important panels. So there are certain panels that raise issues that are very newsworthy, like the gender gap or um, AI or uh, um, other aspects of uh, women in the workplace and how gender plays into that. And so there'll be maybe five or six panels that are covered by different writers. And um, we try to find the most salient parts of those. We do some outside research as well. And then, um, and then we are just given our deadline of noon tomorrow to turn it in <laughs> and a word count. And that's about it. Okay, so knowing that you have a deadline for noon tomorrow, and I can't wait to read about it in the New York Times, I'm going to say, Eileen, thank you for making a few minutes to talk with us. You've been one of the many treats of this event. And oh. so I really appreciate it. And thank you for joining well, us on Women at for, Work. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to hearing the other interviewees as well. Now I get the privilege of talking with Vanessa Esparza. She's the Senior Vice President of Human Capital at Gladstone Place Partners. Vanessa, it was such a treat to meet you yesterday, selfishly to discover you're a Women at Work fan. I'm particularly interested in knowing what brought you to this conference and what have you been learning since you're here? 
So thank you for, um, for making the time. It was great to meet with you yesterday. Um, you know, to be honest, um, I came to the conference because my CEO, um, you know, said he attended last year, said it was a really great, um, great conference. And, um, you know, so far the speakers have been really, um, really positive, I would say, you know, talking about some of the tough issues that that we face as, as sort of women, but it's broader than that. You know, it, it isn't really just about women. And, and actually, I think um, what I'd like to see next year and in years to come is for more men to attend the conference because, you know, we can't make any sort of change with just women in, in the workforce. Um, but so far, there have been so many great ideas uh, shared and, you know, so many great stories of, of women who have led the change. Um, whether it be Anita Hill or um, or others. So that's been really great to, to sort of listen to. So in your work at Gladstone Place Partners, is this gonna be inspiration? Or are you gonna, are you learning things that you can actually plug in when you go back to work? Yeah, no, definitely. So we're a boutique firm. We are um, about 16 people. So um, what's really great for us is that we are, you know, we have an opportunity to build and to make changes. And, you know, we're, we're very flexible in that way. Um, I just came from a, a working group session where we talked about creating cultures that thrive. And so, you know, by the end of the, the hour, we had six points of sort of how do you create a culture that is inclusive, where all employees can thrive, not just parents, um, although we focused a lot on parents, um, but, you know, how, how so many of the um, employees who are maybe caring for, um, for elders, you know, they're... they're Anyway, six points um, that I think can be applied to organizations, whether it's my firm at 16 people or, or larger firms. It's particularly exciting for me to see you come to a conference like this where we have leaders of the most important newspapers on the planet, some of the biggest organizations in our country, and you're leading an up-and-coming firm with a team of 16 people, and you feel like you can go in and plug this stuff in at work at home. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean. You know, some of it uh, you have to modify a, a bit, um, but the, the one part that I really like is that getting all of these ideas, we have an opportunity as a small firm to be very nimble and be very flexible. So sure, certain things may work for Uber and they're great ideas. We don't obviously have to take it all. Um, we can sort of take the pieces that work or take pieces that work from other firms or other organizations and sort of apply it to us. and what makes sense for us in our culture. And in a nutshell, because I was remiss about not asking this, you this at first, what does Gladstone Place Partners do? Yeah, great, great question. Um, so we are a strategic financial communications firm. We advise corporate clients on M&A, um, IPO, shareholder activism defense, uh, crisis litigation work. It is, uh, it is very much a, a sort of niche strategic firm. Um, working with uh, some of the world's, you know, uh, biggest client, uh, companies and helping them sort of strategize on, on solving their, their problems and their sort of issues. So if people either want to engage the work, your firm to help them solve their problems or they want to become your 17th employee, how do they find you? Uh, gladstoneplace.com. Um, we're online. You can certainly um, look me up on LinkedIn. Um, and yeah, we would be very happy to, to connect. Well, I can't thank you enough for reaching out to me yesterday and joining us today. Good luck with everything you're doing. Thank you so much. I love your show. Thank you. <laughs> As many of our regular listeners know, I've been a born and bred fan of the New York Times since I was about 10 years old. To me, it's always been the paper of record and a regular part of how I learn to understand the world that I live in. Not surprisingly, the New York Times has been at the forefront of really significant changes in how the workplace considers ways to help women join, stay, succeed, and lead, as well as our national discourse on the challenges and opportunities that we need to consider to bring all of those goals to life. As the most recent incarnation of the New York Times commitment to advancing women in the workplace and advancing a national discourse on how we can do it together, they have created this remarkable New World Summit. It's a one and a half day conference here in Brooklyn, New York, where the New York Times journalists themselves are serving as the organizers and moderators of a series of profoundly encouraging, inspiring, and enlightening conversations on how we can make a workplace that's more inclusive, more dynamic, and more welcoming of us all. 
Patty and I have had the great privilege to be here to listen to sessions and talk to the various speakers and attendees. Right now, we're going to bring you one more. I'm talking with William Browning. He's the Chief of Digital Technology Solutions and Transformation at United Way Worldwide. William, I was so excited to see you in the last session that we were in together. Tell me, what brought you here? What are you hoping to learn? Well, first, I'm a father of a six-year-old daughter, and I think about her future. Her name's Madeline, named after Madeline Albright. I believe um, in my, my career, I've had a, a good um, view of what's happening around the world. And I always think that we do, uh, do not do enough to foster and empower women to be leaders and actually really, um, frankly, have the equality and the respect they deserve to, to be equal partners to men in the, uh, both the workplace and as well as the global community. I couldn't agree more. So here's the question. It's clear that you have a personal motivation and you've got the big picture perspective. What kind of work is going on in United Way that we should know about that's helping to move some of these efforts forward or where you can plug in the things that you're learning today? Well, we're extraordinarily lucky at United Way. We, uh, we have um, our Women United group, which is about 155,000 women leaders around the, uh, around the world that come together and really look at how are we addressing and empowering women. Uh, I'm very excited, most recently we were looking at um, the question about how can we actually foster women entrepreneurs, especially women of color, uh, and actually help them on the social enterprise side, not simply just on the nonprofit side. Uh, and we're really interested in this question of you know, how do we even internally ensure that we are um, a safe and inclusive environment that, you know, and are really building up um, um, the capacity of women. I, I believe if we really can, um, and this conference is very inspiring about you know, the, the ability for us um, and I think men like me and others need to step forward. Uh, if we can really harness the full power of diversity, not just women, but race and, 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 and um, uh, gender, and um, I think we really have a much better chance of solving some of the more complex problems in the world today. One of the, the complex problems that we keep facing, and Sally Krawcheck mentioned it this morning, isn't she amazing, is um, the kind of z notion of a zero-sum game, mm -hmm. a kind of patriarchal, um, control over power, how do we, and you're in a room filled with women today, how do we have the conversation so that the male allies that we so desperately need feel welcome in the conversation? Well, I think you, I think you got to speak to it in the terms of, you know, I, I'm a free enterprise business guy, so I mean, it, which is kind of odd in the nonprofit sector. I look at it like what's, what's best for growth and business and profitability and the things that might be, um, you know, seem, um, selfish are actually better for men if they actually lean into that. It's not a threat. Uh, it's, a, it's a much better, uh, um, you know, the data shows it. I mean, performance of companies that actually have diversity, companies that are women-led, entrepreneurs are actually, that are women are actually a better bet than most men, male entrepreneurs. I thought Sally did a great job at highlighting that today. Um, so I think it's about, if you're really trying to achieve your goals as a business person, let's take that category, this is a much better way to go. As far as feeling uh, safe, I think men need to need to step up and own some of their behavior. I think the Me Too movement has been wonderful to say, uh, frankly, overdue, uh, to really reset the stage for uh, a conversation. You know, for far too often, for far too long, women have been underpaid compared to their uh, male counterparts. For far too often, they haven't had the voice they need to have. So, I think with my fellow colleagues that are male, I think we need to get we need to you know link arms and say this is a better. We're going to be better off for it. And I also say from a sustainability and planet side, I think. There's no question that you know it, the, that men and gen are going to be better off if we have um, women who are empowered or helping us really solve these complex problems. This is not a the patriarch can't do it um, alone. That's for sure. And nor can the model, frankly, continue the way it is. In my opinion, I'm so delighted to hear all of it. And obviously agree with you. We've got some really big, naughty problems to solve and we need talent <laughs> yeah. everywhere we can yeah. get it. So when you go back to work tomorrow at the United Way, are there things that you learned today that you're going to bring back with you? What are, is there anything concrete that you're hooking into? And is there big picture stuff that you want to kind of chew on and let simmer over time? No, it's funny. I, this, I, this conference follows the Social Innovation Summit I just attended last week in LA. and both So both conferences have been fresh on the perspective that even though I'm talking a good game, we're not doing enough in United Way to really um, still promote um, the, the, the um, women entrepreneurs, women leaders. So I think I go back a little more fired up, with, and especially with more data now on, um, on things we should be thinking about, bigger picture, especially a good example is like uh, the, you know, uh, the Marvel uh, comics, um, Sana talked about the, the portrayal of, of, a, of, a, of a Muslim character, a woman Muslim character as a superhero. And, I spoke to her afterwards, and she just inspired me because 
she, you know, you create these, you have the ability to really create opportunities. So when I get back to United Way, the thing I'll be looking at with my team is, you know, where, where does this fit? One of the things I'm responsible for is building um, a content strategy for, you know, we have 64,000 companies that participate in workplace giving across the planet, United Way. And one of the things we're doing is we're digitalizing that content through Salesforce, our partnership with Salesforce. So I look at the examples of, of especially in this conference, of, um, of women, especially role models, and their, how, they, how they actually got to where they needed to, um, where they are in far as leadership, but the fights they had to um, take to get there. Can United Way be facilitating that content, those stories, to inspire and mobilize people and really get people to really see this issue differently? So for me, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a great um, opportunity. I look forward to figuring out other ways to champion this issue a little bit differently. And uh, frankly, get out of the way of those that are actually doing, you know, my job as a strategist is to get out of the way and mobilize people, not, not to be the person directing. Does that make sense? So for the people who would like to find you, ways to connect with the United Way and to contribute to all of the good work that you're doing, uh, where, th where should they turn? Well, you can go to unitedway.org and, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm on, you know, William Browning LinkedIn. I'm easy to find, um, relatively responsive, and I think... <laughs> We are looking for, United Way was formed 130 years ago when people of different religious cultures came together in the third floor synagogue in Denver and during the silver rush. And they came together because they, they, they understood that only together could they actually solve the problem. So that's why I came to United Way, the bipartisan need to bring humanity together to really solve the issues, especially the issues we're facing now are essential. So I think I, I, we welcome people in. If you're not sure, you can go to your local United Way, but I'm pretty easy to find and I'm actually, you know, our view is partnership is the only way to go. Well, William, I can't thank you enough for all of that, the work of United Way, and joining us in the partnership here today. No, Thanks good. so much. What a great pleasure. The highlight for many of us at the conference was an appearance by Anita Hill, who spoke with Jessica Bennett, gender editor of the New York Times. Anita, thank you so much for being here. It's truly our honor. Mm -hmm. And the audience looks pretty excited. Oh, I'm, I'm excited to talk with them. <laughs> so you need no introduction, but I wanted to tell a little backstory of mine, which is that I was 10 years old when you testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee. I don't remember really understanding what was happening, but I do remember my father insisting that we leave the television on. It wasn't until many years later, in 2014, when the documentary about you came out, that I really truly learned your story, and then later with the feature film. But last year, as we gathered at the new rules, which happened to be on the day of the Kavanaugh hearings, we didn't plan that, um, but it made for a really incredible news event. It felt, I think, to a lot of women and people in my generation like this was our Anita Hill moment. So I don't want to make you retread those committee hearings yet again, but I do want to ask you, how did 1991 change the course of your life? Oh, you know, it, it's almost impossible to know. It's been 30, almost 30 years now, so it's hard to even remember what exactly what was going on in my life uh, before. This is the new normal for me. Um, I had not uh, planned to be sitting in front of an audience and talking with the New York Times you know, 30 years ago. Um, but I will say that I am still a teacher, and I do teach at a university. It's my career. I maintain that, although the content of what I teach now is different. Um, the emphasis that I now have on equality was not the emphasis that my work was taking uh, back in 1991. I was actually a contracts professor, uh, contracts and commercial law person. Um, I did some work around equality issues, but it wasn't the focus of my life. But the, the thing that I have to say is that what I have done is I've combined the old with the new. So when I look at equality, I look also at economic inequality. Um, and so the background is always there in terms of my profession. In terms of being a public figure, absolutely no. I would have rather spent my life in front of my computer or in a library. Um, but, you know, I'm looking out and you actually do look better than a computer screen. <laughs> <laughs>
You're a very private person. And a few years back, my colleague Cheryl Gay Stolberg, our congressional reporter, profiled you. And she wrote that at the time, this was in 2014, many of your students at Brandeis didn't actually know your backstory. You were just their professor. But at that same time, you decided to cooperate with a documentary filmmaking team. Why? In 2014, I think we were really coming back to the issues that were opened up in the hearing in a brand new way. Um, if you, I won't go all the way back and through all of the details of 1991, but I will say, uh, remind you that after the hearings, 70% uh, or at least a, a, a pretty wide majority of people thought that I had perjured myself. Um, most of the people polled, regardless of race, regardless of gender, believed that Clarence Thomas should be confirmed for the Supreme Court. Um, many people viewing the hearings didn't even realize that sexual harassment was something that was actionable, that they could file a complaint about. They had no idea what the concept was about. So we were at a very different point. In the decades following the hearings, that changed. It changed because people started telling their stories, we started filing complaints, we had lawsuits that were filed, and the public became much more aware. Uh, there was still a, an issue of connecting that awareness with action. And I wanted people to understand, with this new awareness, what had actually happened in 1991. And so the film made that possible, the documentary made that possible. What did it feel like to be part of it? Uh, uh, as, as I said, I'm a fairly private person, and, and I encountered one of the photographers this morning taking a photo of me getting makeup on. Uh, <laughs> it's not fun, unless you really love this sort of thing, to have a camera following you around for two or three years. It's just not, it was no fun for me. Um, but I learned to live with it, and, and I had a, a great director in Frieda Mock who was very sensitive to that, who was very serious about it. She brought in a, a sense of, you know, we want people to know you, but we also want to protect your privacy, understand that. And I think that was, was also very helpful. But what it also, the film also did, was to give me an opportunity to share one of the scenes in a classroom, to share what my students are doing. Um, and if, if I fast forward to today, I, I would just say that they're doing even more. I've, now, um, people don't understand that I, I'd never really taught the hearings. People say, well, did the students know about you? Well, I didn't teach me. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that I have been doing lately is to convene students who are doing research around issues that are related to sexual har uh, harassment and other forms of sexual violence and gender violence and abuse. And so we're looking at a number of issues that I think are really important for us to understand. For example, uh, corporate social responsibility and how that can, that framework can be used to get people very um, involved and engaged in cleaning up their um, institutions and how we can get investors um, involved in making sure that the money that they put in place does not go to environments that are full of sexual harassment or where sexual harassment is not being addressed. We got, I have students looking at uh, the issue of what kind of services do survivors need in corporate environments? Beyond getting accountability for violations, what do you need to put women um, and men who have been harassed back on track to bring them back to what they, their careers would be like or what, what their uh, lives would be like um, if, if we uh, are really making sure that they are made whole for violations. And then there's one more that always gets people's interest. We're looking at the issue of uh, 
pornography and what we're calling image-based harassment mm. in the workplace because what we have found is that, and I'm sure you know this, that there is an awful lot of pornography downloaded on your corporate computers um, and being that's being viewed in offices and how are we going to address that with the laws that we have and maybe we need new laws that protect against it. So there are a lot of issues that are going on now uh, that I'm exploring and that my students are involved in. If we did a film today, I think that that would be included in it. You wrote for us last year, thank you for writing for the New York Times, that during the Kavanaugh hearings, the Senate Judiciary Committee basically had an opportunity to right the wrongs of yours. Did they do that? What would you have done differently? Well, let me, what do you think? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, you know, absolutely they did not. I mean, just to start with, they should have had a process in place for receiving complaints. They had none. And, you, and can you imagine that we are putting judges on the bench, not just on the Supreme Court, but on the trial court benches and the, and the courts of appeal benches, who may in fact have complaints against them, but where people are not able to come forward because they don't have a system to come forward in. One of the big discussions of the Kavanaugh hearing was, you know, what should have happened to uh, Christine Blasey Ford's complaint even though it was out there, it was known, there was no way for her to know how to be heard. Uh, we also know that in the process itself that, that they sort of put together um, at the last minute, it, there was this chilling effect. There may have been other witnesses who might have come forward but because of the way the process was thrown together and the intimidation factor, uh, we don't know that there weren't other witnesses. And in fact, when the investigation was framed, other witnesses other than Christine Blasey Ford and, and um, the nominee were excluded from the investigation. So, you know, lawyers like to say process matters, but I think that both the hearing in 1991 and the one in 27 and 2018 show exactly how much process matters. And, and the bigger lesson really is for us to examine not only this process and, and the structures of the Senate, but how our own processes in our companies are, are inhibiting us finding the truth of matters and, and too often favor the people who may be engaging in abuse. So there's a lot of lessons to be learned. The Senate hasn't learned them yet because they still don't have anything in place. Uh, but there is, it doesn't prohibit us from looking at our own workplaces and, and making the changes internally. And then it wouldn't hurt to push the Senate a bit. <laughs> Well, I want to ask you about Joe Biden, because he oversaw the Senate Judiciary Committee during your hearings, and this, to remind, was an all-white, all-male panel. And he recently called you to express regret for how you were treated, and, and you said that you weren't satisfied by that. Some time has passed now. Has he corrected that? Well, let me just say that my concern at this moment is this. Um, and that is that 27, almost 28 years later, what we want from our leaders is for someone or someones to step up and say, what happened in 1991, what happened in 2018 will never happen again. And, and beyond that, that the government is going to put all together all of the resources that it has to make sure that the government processes are a model for what's going on in our workplaces. We want them to be not the bad example that we learned from, 
but the good example, and it has to start with leadership at the top. You know, one of the things that we know for sure is that leadership at the top on any issue in any institution is what changes the game. If you want to talk about new rules, you can put together all of the new rules that you want to, but if you don't have leadership behind those rules, they don't get affected. And so we need leaders in every sector, public and private, that will be taking those leads and using what we have learned and this greater public awareness that we have developed over the past two and a half plus decades to get us where we need to be to start eliminating the problems that have been well documented and that we all know exist. Do you see any of the current Democratic candidates as having addressed this? I haven't heard it if it has happened, uh, but I'm, you know, we've got a long way to go before well, I guess the first debates are coming up. We've got, I'd love to hear a question in the debates about gender violence and sexual harassment and, and the whole range of issues that are out there. I'd love to have that in the debate. So if I'm, I guess if I'm talking to the press, I, <laughs> somebody can raise it. Um, but and I hope that just by having it there, they will begin to give thoughtful responses to the problem that exists. You know, I keep, and I said this in the piece uh, that I wrote for the Times, you, when you look at the numbers of, of people, women and men, and, and, and increasingly people who don't identify as any, in fact, in a, in a, in a higher rate, um, the, the, the level of violence and harassment and bullying that exists around gender is so high. And I can't even imagine another uh, social phenomenon that exists that wouldn't be seen as a public crisis. If this were happening around any other issue, I think that we would have people saying, this is a public crisis and we have to do something. You know, it affects people's housing options, it affects their workplace options, it affects their education, it affects, in some cases, the criminal justice system. I mean, this is something that can be seen in many aspects of people's lives, health and basic safety. Um, so, I think it's time for us to recognize the problem for what it is. And I'm, I'm hopeful that this is the moment with the public recognition that that will happen. In the year after your testimony, complaints to the EEOC about sexual harassment went up 73%. Some of the working women's groups, like 9 to 5, report their phone lines ringing off the hook with, with women, largely women, saying, you mean this is illegal? You mean I can do something about this? And of course, in the year after, a record number of women ran for Congress. Mm -hmm. Why did it take so long for Me Too to happen? Uh, because I, I think we had to come to terms with a fact, of, of a number of facts, let's just say. We had to come to terms with the fact, the, the fact that people really didn't know that this was illegal. I mean, it had been so normalized in our workplaces that people just assumed this is the way life is. And then we had to start thinking about, okay, what kinds of things are we, do we need to do? And I think the first approach was to say, let's change behavior. That's all we have to do. We gotta, you know, get a few bad apples out of the system and that's going to be enough. Then we realized that that wasn't enough, that the few bad apples really was not entirely the problem, that what we had were cultural problems and cultural acceptance of it, and that around the cultural acceptance were structures that were built to support it. Um, and, and that includes some legal structures that were built. 
I mean, the, the non-disclosure agreements that were put into place, the forced mediation around claims of abuse in the workplace, those were things that we just sort of had thought of as neutral, but were actually contributing greatly to an ongoing problem. So we didn't really understand the complexity of it. And the Me Too movement came about because we started to understand the complexity of it. And I will say, because the press started covering it. And if you don't have all of those things coming together, you're not gonna have the kind of reckoning that, that you uh, referred to in the opening. The kind of reckoning that actually engages people and puts together out there the stories uh, and the analysis that will make for a Me Too movement and that invites other people to come in and engage in the conversation. Do you see parallels to your experience there? I mean, you've spoken a lot about the letters you received, you know, hundreds and upon thousands of letters that came to you. Um, and now there seems to be communities sprouting up. Did, was it an incredibly isolating experience for, for you to speak out? Well, you saw, I mean, you see the pictures. There I am, and, and there were not a lot of people who were joining publicly. But in a way, the letters do reflect the kind of connections that people made with me and with that hearing and with the issue. Um, the connections that range from sexual harassment to sexual assault to incest to um, domestic violence that I've heard from in those letters, you know, were in, in a way its own social movement. Um, we didn't have the platforms. And now we have a different platforms. We didn't necessarily even at the moment have the press, but I will say that in 1991, after the hearing, one of the things that helped more people get engaged were two different publications, one from a San Diego newspaper and one from People Magazine, where they started to cover the hearings and what came out of it, not as a political episode, but as a cultural phenomenon. And they started talking to women in particular about their experiences. And I think that really did change the conversation. Uh, but, you know, also it caused uh, some resistance that eventually kind of stalled progress. But we're, we, we continue to move forward. It takes a long time before people are willing to, to understand that, hey, we've got a culture that enables this. And cultural changes are hard, uh, whether it's in corporate America or universities, colleges and universities. Those are difficult for people to make. I want to save a little time for questions from the audience, but one more for you from me. Um, I was speaking with a sociologist who's here, Marianne Cooper, um, and we were talking about people who sort of find themselves at the front lines of movements, sometimes purposefully, sometimes reluctantly. You found yourself there. Was there a cost to that? What is the cost? You know, there, yes, there was a cost. And, and I don't spend a lot of time trying to calculate the cost. What I do spend time doing is trying to make sure that the benefits outweigh the costs, that I can move forward and have positive outcomes. You know, a lot of people um, came to me after the hearing and said, you know, people aren't going to come forward now, and some people blamed me for that. And I was determined that I was not going to be the reason that people didn't come forward. I had two things going for me. I had youth. You know, I was 35 years old, and I have a lot of patience. And more and more, I think, the ability to take the long view, um, to see, to measure progress, 
um, not just about in sort of my lifetime, but to measure progress through the lifetime of women who came before me, like my mother's lifetime, my grandmother's lifetime, to realize that we have moved forward, uh, but also to take the long view in looking forward to thinking about what we can do for the next generation and where we want to hand over the baton to them, uh, where we would like to be in this race in order to make sure that they have the tools that they need to succeed in their world and to, to really move to eliminate the problem. So yes, there was a toll. I don't focus on it so much um, just because uh, I think focusing on it doesn't help me do what I need to do. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I say I had youth then, and I have patience, but I'm a little more impatient now that I have less youth. <laughs> Makes sense. Let's take one or two questions from the audience. Thank you so much for all the work you've been doing for the last 30 years with students. In academia, there's been a lot of issues around sexual harassment and college presidents being toppled. I'm a, an attorney as well. And do you think we're coming at this from the wrong way? When we look at this as a legal problem, often it may not rise to the level of being legally sexual uh, assault or harassment, but perhaps if we think about it from an ethical issue, um, can we flip the way we solve these problems by looking at the ethics of leadership and how academic and other institutions should be run? I think we should, of course, look at it from an ethical issue. I think we need to look at it from a health and safety issue. Um, I think that there are many things that we are missing. Um, the legal question is just the start. And one of the, one of the real issues is that we don't often uh, act in our workplaces until something rises to the level of legal culpability. And then we get all very excited about it and we should look at this as an ethical and a management issue so that we start to address problems before they rise to the level of somebody maybe having to lose their job. Um, we know that uh, there are ways that we can flag behavior that ultimately is likely to escalate. So we should be doing that in advance and training managers to attend to those issues. The other thing that I think we are missing, and this is what kind of frightens people, and they think, okay, here we go over, over uh, processing this and, and over policing this behavior. But what we know now is that much of this behavior starts at elementary school level. And what we need to think about is that that is normalizing abusive behavior. It is teaching potential victims that this is normal. It is teaching abusers, potential abusers, that this is normal. And it puts us on what I say is a pathway of a developing attitudes about it, which we don't really robustly address until we get to college. And by that time, attitudes have already been formed. Um, so we need to take some preemptive measures, and we need to do that in, from the broadest range of perspectives that we can. Uh, thank you again for all your comments and also just leading the change that we need here in the world for women. Um, I'm, I was struck by your conversation about helping people get back on track. And as a chief people officer, someone who's dedicated my career to helping an organization motivate their people and, and make people be able to come to work unencumbered to do their best work, the hardest thing is to get someone back on track when something happens. So given your experiences, what advice or, uh, or things that you did or things people did to help you would you suggest for people in the workplace to try to um, do or implement in order to help people get back on track? Well, first of all, um, you can start with the career counseling. And I don't know that that is routine for people who have been victimized. I don't think it is, as a matter of fact. 
Uh, but start with career counseling because these, the, and, and we don't know enough about this, but the research shows that women um, and men and, and all, all people who have been the victims of this kind of discrimination and other kinds of discrimination as well suffer in some way for their career. Either sometimes it's because they've taken time off, they haven't been as productive, they don't get good evaluations. Um, and so you, we need to sort of take that into account and figure out, okay, how do we get them back? And, and career counseling, presenting opportunities, maybe uh, providing mentors, um, maybe getting outside advice for people because maybe they don't quite trust your system at this point. So that's one thing. The other thing is um, kind of basic safety stuff. You know, as a matter of fact, I have a student who is, uh, is involved in this, but you know, some, one of the things that happens when a person is uh, um, a, a victim of misconduct is they don't feel safe in the environment. Uh, and you, there are some tangible things that you can do about, uh, especially if there's an assault involved, uh, about lighting and to, in, in, in uh, parking areas, um, phones that allow people to contact um, people if they feel safe, unsafe or insecure. Um, information about health options that speak directly to the person who has been victimized. Providing those things for people, whether it's physical um, health issues or uh, psychological health issues that occur because a person has been. So that whole array of resources, uh, but don't forget the career resources because that's ultimately what you want to make sure that you get back on track. And that's really where the discrimination, the law, comes in, that we want to make people whole when they have been violated. Um, so we, there, there's a whole array of things that I think that needs to be considered, and we're only beginning to describe and think about what they actually are. And I guess the key to us getting it right is to open relationships with survivors and hear from them about what they need. We are unfortunately out of time. Professor Hill, thank you so much. I mean, we'll give you whatever you want. Thank you all so much for joining us. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132 and find me at Laura Zarrow. I'd also like to thank Jessica Bennett, gender editor of the New York Times, for inviting us to this extraordinary summit. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.